Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, dressed listeners, we have long promised an episode on today's subject, and I am thrilled that this is a topic we get to cover with my dear friend, Clarissa Escara who just happens to be the Associate Curator of Costume and Textiles at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Clarissa has worked at the museum since 2008 and is the curator behind LACMA's current exhibition, Power of Pattern, Central Asian Ecots, which is now on view until August 11th. And Cassidy, you know I'm very excited for this episode because I'm only minorly obsessed (laughs) with Ecot. (gasps) Yes, I know you are. And Believe me, you are all in for a treat. So, Clarissa, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Clarissa, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you here with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and before we delve into this fascinating history of Central Asian ECOTS, which I can't wait to delve into, uh, but first I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, how you came to fashion history, and about the path to your current job as Associate Curator of Costume and Textiles at LACMA, or the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where you have worked since 2008, over 11 years. I know, time flies when you're having fun. Um, (laughs) You know, I've always loved uh, fashion and cloth, and I knew that I would do something in that field as a small child. Uh, so when I went to college, I majored in fashion design, uh, but I went also to a private women's liberal arts college called Bernau, uh, and there I picked up, I decided to also do a, a minor in gender studies. And while taking a class on costume history, I was also taking a class on women's history, and I was seeing all of these amazing connections in the evolution of fashion with the evolution of uh, society and the roles between men and women. So I did an internship at the Atlanta History Center under Susan Neal and fell in love the minute I walked into the collection space. I was able to touch things that I had never seen before and only read in books and studied um, in that way. And so from there, I went to graduate school at the University of Georgia um, and got a master's in fashion history under Patricia Hunt Hurst. And after that, I knew that I wanted to be in a museum and a collection, but that there weren't very many jobs for me where I was currently living in Georgia. Uh, But at that time, uh, one of my best friends said that she was moving to California and would I want to go with her? And I said, (laughs) sure. So we packed up a car and drove across the country and I lived at her parents' house for uh, a few months and then managed to make my way with teaching um, at a fashion college, costume history and construction. And I also, for a short period, ran a costume department Uh, in Southern California when the job at LACMA opened up. And, you know, this whole time I was looking for jobs in museums and nothing was opening up for me. And I just didn't think I would get it. But 
somehow, some way, it, it was amazing. It was the right place at the right time. And I, and I got that job. And I am thankful for it every day because I really love what I do. And it's at LACMA that you work with the amazing Sharon Takeda, Senior Curator and Department Head. And I'm hoping you can now tell us a little bit about your job, as well as LACMA's incredible encyclopedic collection, which features over 35,000 objects from around the world. I mean, this is incredible. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Um, And it's great to work with Sharon and our fabulous staff here. But as a curator of costume and textiles, I have the lucky, lucky job of collecting, interpreting, and caring for the objects in our collection, which, as you say, are encyclopedic, which means that our costume and textiles spans time, place, and societies. So, for example, in our collection, we hold things like Coptic textiles to ancient Peruvian mantles to Japanese kimono to 18th century French court dress. Uh, We have great African works up to 19th and 20th century haute couture and fashions that have come off the runway. So it's quite a privilege to be able to, to work with this collection. Yeah, and I've actually had the privilege of coming and visiting you all over there. And I'm sure dress listeners can guess that some of my favorite pieces begin with a P and end with an array. But you were (laughs) kind enough to take a few of those out for me last time. Oh, yeah, that was so, so cool to see those those pieces up close and personal. Um, Yes. But can you actually tell us about a few pieces from the collection that stand out for you? Oh, this is so hard, Cass. Uh, There are so many great pieces. I can think of times when I've walked through the collection and had moments where my breath was taken away. Uh, one time I was the part of the collection where we have 18th century dresses and I was looking at a cotton dress that was printed with a floral pattern. But then when I looked closely, it was all actually chain stitch embroidered. It was so fine that wow. it looked like printing and it, and it literally took my breath away. Uh, there's also this dress from um, the Romantic era, so about 1820s, 30s, that's pink, and that has these amazing beret sleeves that are intricately folded, almost like a pop-up lantern. Um, And the way it's done, I still can't wrap my brain around how, but it's one of those things that one day I'm going to figure it out. And then we also have this fantastic zoot suit that we acquired uh, for our Raining Men exhibition, which opened back in 2016. Uh, It was likely worn by a Harlem entertainer, and it is incredibly exaggerated with these wonderfully broad shoulders, pegged sleeves of the jacket, pegged pants, very high waist uh, of the trousers that's so high, it's actually 17-inch zipper fly, and with pockets on the jacket that are sewn only at the top so that when the wearer moved and spun around, they would have flown out. It's, it's such a great piece. Yeah, and I really love those pieces, of course, the high fashion haute couture pieces, but those really you know, pieces that are worn, um, you know, more by the regular human beings in society. <laughs> um, and just like, how exciting that piece of history is and what that era that it's tied to. And I'm actually really glad that you mentioned the Zoot Suit because that leads me to my next topic, which is undertaking the making LACMA's costume and textiles pattern project, uh, which I believe you use the Zoot Suit as, uh, as uh, to make a pattern for that project. And can you tell us more about this fantastic online resource? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the zoot suit, uh, we did take a pattern off of it because it is considered the first American suit. And we wanted and still want with this undertaking the making project to make uh, garment patterns from objects in the collection available for free download. They're available as PDFs. And this all started really with an exhibition um, called Fashioning Fashion, which opened in 2010. And at that time, we were building invisible mounts that were made from uh, a thick felt, and it required taking a pattern off of those objects to, to make these, these mounts, which allow the objects to safely float and suspend uh, from wires. And in the process of taking all these patterns, we thought, oh, we, this is a, such a wonderful resource, great for enthusiasts, costumers, and historians alike to, to enjoy. And we collaborated with a costume designer, Thomas Bernard, to pull these patterns, make them into flat patterns, um, and publish them as these downloadable PDFs. And we did that for several pieces in Fashioning Fashion, which covered 18th, 19th, and early 20th century men's, women's, and children's dress. And then I did several more. So it also includes an early 20th century Japanese tanbi coat, which is based off of the European wool coat styles, and also an 18th century macaroni suit. Yeah, and it's really, really cool. And I have to say, I really admire that about you as a fashion historian because you really have this hands-on experience with really understanding the construction of garments, of historical uh, pieces. So I think that's really, really cool. And uh, you've actually curated numerous exhibitions, including Reigning Men Fashion and Menswear, 1715 to 2015. That was uh, from 2016. And I actually had a chance to see it and it was Fabulous. And can you give our listeners a bit of insight into what goes into the planning of an exhibition of this size? Where do you even start with this process? I think people will be a little surprised at how long this sort of planning for exhibitions can really take. Yes. Well, that exhibition, which was uh, a 300-year survey of menswear and mostly drawn from our permanent collection, that project took five years and it was co-curated between myself and Sharon Takeda, um, as well as Kay Spilker, who's now curator emeritus. And we started that project basically uh, by looking at our collection. Uh, we realized we had a very strong 18th and 19th century menswear collection, especially after a major acquisition of European 18th, 19th, and early 20th century fashion, uh, we saw these suits that were incredibly colorful in the 18th century and then beautifully structured and tailored in the 19th century. And we thought, you know, it would be a really wonderful opportunity to share these as a full survey of menswear that goes up into the present day. So we used this exhibition as a way to build our 20th and 21st century menswear collection. And that process takes a long time. And five years is actually normal for a large exhibition with a publication that comes with it. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that all photography for that book and all the texts are due a year before the exhibition opens. And so we're work really working ahead of time. We also developed a 19th century mannequin silhouette. Uh, we worked really closely with our conservators and all of our staff here, photographers, publications, exhibition designers, 
our uh, mannequin installation specialist, Melinda Kirstein, and all the amazing staff that we have. And so it's a really collaborative process. Right. And I'm really glad you mentioned the catalog because, dress listeners, you can, of course, pick up your very own copy. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, and I highly suggest checking it out. And we are going to hear all about the exhibition Clarissa most recently curated after a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome back, dress listeners. So today we are here to discuss the exhibition that Clarissa recently created entitled Power of Pattern, Central Asian Ecots from the David and Elizabeth Riseboard Collection, uh, currently on view now through August 11th. So I actually received a copy of this accompanying catalog, Clarissa. It is a beautiful exhibition. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. So for our listeners who might not know, uh, what is ECOT at its most basic form? So ECOT is a resist dye technique where the design is dyed into threads prior to weaving. That means that threads are tightly bound so that those bound portions of those threads, when they're submerged into dye baths, that portion resists the saturation of dye and color. And when those threads are removed from the dye bath and those the binding threads are cut off, um, you have a pattern which is created. The word ikat actually comes from the Malay word, mengikat, meaning to tie or to bind, which references this process of tying and binding those threads. And the distinctive quality of ikat is that when those threads are then woven together, these blurry edges of shapes emerges. Um, and that is caused by those pre-dyed yarns being slightly misaligned uh, during the weaving process. And that blurry edge uh, is, is quite beautiful. And in Uzbekistan, the word is actually, for, for ikat, it's abrbandi, um, ab, mean, ab meaning cloud and bandi meaning to bind. And I feel like it's a really lovely poetic reference to that cloud-like blurred effect of the shapes. Um, and I should also mention that ikat is an ancient tradition that has been practiced independently by societies all over the globe. So this is not just in Central Asia, but the ikat of Central Asia is very distinctive because of their use of bright color and a multitude of colors to create these bold patterns. Right. And this exhibition, of course, centers around Central Asian ECOT, but also this really this golden period of production in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And this is a tradition that extends back centuries, the history of which is as tumultuous as ECOT patterning is colorful, perhaps. So I'm hoping you can share a bit with us about this fascinating history of this part of the world. Yes, the history is really important to understand in looking at Central Asian ikats because these patterns are composed of motifs with ancient and nomadic origins that have all filtered into the region and have become distinctly Central Asian. So when we talk about Central Asia, we're looking at the region of present-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan, the stands. Um, if you're looking at a map, it's a landlocked ecoregion, and you'll notice that it's nestled between the present-day countries of Iran, Afghanistan, India, China, Mongolia, and Russia. 
And so it was this active center of transcontinental trade for thousands of years, um, even before the so-called Silk Road. And the Silk Road was established around the first century BCE. And this, what really was an intricate network of trade routes, is what famously supplied the ancient Roman Empire with the luxurious silks from China. Although there was a lot of movement of many other goods, such as silk, in addition to silk, spices, metals, stones, glass, and also the movement of ideas and aesthetics, many of which were absorbed by Central Asia because it was the center of that trade route. But in addition to trade, there was also a rich history of conquests. So in prehistoric times, the region was populated by primarily nomadic Indo-Europeans from the West and Turkic tribes from the East. And then about 500 BCE, you have the Sogdians, which come in from Persia, and they brought in aesthetics of, of the Persian Empire. Then by 330 BCE, you have Alexander the Great from Macedonia, who came in with the Greeks to conquer Persia. Then in the 7th century, we have the Arab Muslim conquest, which swept through the region and, and you have the rise of Islamic culture. Um, and also this greater shared understanding through the land of the value of textiles, uh, both as utilitarian objects, but also as a source of luxury that was transportable too. And then this is like a who's who of major conquerors, because in the 13th <laughs> century, we have the Mongol ruler, Genghis Khan, which comes in. And he and his successors would eventually extend the Mongol Empire all the way to the Sea of Japan, which was the largest area controlled by a single ruler. And he had a great impact on the region. And then the following century in the 14th, Timur, or as we know him in the West, Tamerlane, uh, and he's born actually in Central Asia. He established the Timurid Empire and conquered the region, which was nearly the size of Genghis Khan. And so if you can imagine all of this movement of people and ideas and um, societies throughout all of these skilled artisans, especially those in the textile industry, were largely spared. Um, and they were often moved to cities that these rulers were building and creating um, in their own empire. And so you have this very, very interesting movement of aesthetics. And as a result, textiles continue to be a, a precious luxury item that was imbued with many artistic influences. And also this common reverence for cloth that went beyond the multitude of ethnicities that would uh, populate and still populates the region, um, as well as religions, because although it is primarily uh, Islamic, there's a history of, of many different religions prior and then even into the 19th century and today, a Jewish population in the region. Yeah, and this is such an incredibly fascinating history, of course. Huge, huge history that could be many, many podcast episodes. But I think in general, it's really nice um, and kind of amazing to research and then understand just how important textiles were during this, these periods. And like you said, they were revered. They were sometimes used as currency. Um, it's just such an incredibly rich history in this region that relates specifically to textile production. And we're going to talk about the 19th century specifically because this was a period of great artistic flowering in terms of the Central Asian ecot production. Can you tell us more about that? After the fall of the Timurid Empire, 
um, there was this general period of stagnation and instability. Uh, this also was having to do with the trade route of goods going around Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, which limited the flow of wealth that went into Central Asia um, and also started a lot of uh, wars uh, w- within that region. And so this cultural vacuum then started to happen where in the late 18th and early 19th century, the region uh, started to really look inward um, at its own distinct identity adapted from nomadic culture and trade and conquest without the influence of neighboring societies. Uh, Kingdoms emerged, which um, are, are, are called khanates there. If you think kingdom and khans, like Genghis Khan, there were khanates. Uh, and then artisans began to draw inspiration from those rich traditions um, to create this form of art that is ikat. And this is why the history of the region is so important, because in these ikats, they're looking at motifs that have very ancient origins that moved into the region and then became Central Asian. And when these designers who were creating these textiles started to build these patterns, they just drew from these motifs that surrounded them in everyday life. Um, It's really quite extraordinary. Yeah, and this exhibition is called The Power of Pattern, and it's because these textiles are so visually striking and arresting. They're beautifully executed patterns and these riots of colors. Can you tell us more about this process of producing ECOT? Yes, the process is really interesting. Um, You know, to contemporary viewers, um, I feel Central Asian ECOT seems surprisingly modern, but they all date in this exhibition. uh, They all date from the 19th and early 20th century. Um, You'll see that the pattern's range too, from distilled, two-toned patterns to complex, multicolored patterns, which blend many motifs. And it's also interesting to kind of walk into home goods stores today and see e-cut patterns in so many things like curtains and pillows that um, are, are really inspired by this craft. Um, as well as fashion designers. I mean, Oscar de la Renta, Dries van Noten, they were all inspired by these textiles. But in, in Central Asia, the way that they are produced is incredibly complex, and it involves a series of highly specialized and highly skilled workers who, at every step of the process, kind of completed that one step as a specialized task. So to take you through that process, um, which would have had to take place in a urban center because you needed the space and kind of permanent settings. So this was in, in cities like Bukhara, Samarkand, and then places in the Fergana Valley. Um, first, the silk warps are prepared. They're boiled and whitened, stretched and dried. And then those threads are divided into bundles, usually about 40 threads per bundle, uh, tied and stretched and folded on a wood frame. And so that's, you know, one step of the process. Then the next step is that a master designer called an abrabanchi would mark out an ikat design on the threads uh, with the charcoal and then bind sections of those threads according to that design with uh, a string that was likely waxed or resistant to, to, to dye and liquid. Then 
those warps are removed from the frame, wrapped around a pole, and then taken to be dyed. And then it goes into another workshop uh, where it's dyed either in hot dye, which is yellow and red, or cold dye, which is blue. And those dyers then dye that, those threads, and then they're brought back, uh, they're dried, and then placed back on the frame where the binding threads are cut off and then new binding threads are put on, again, according to the pattern that was marked on there. And then those threads are removed from the frame, again, wrapped around a pole and then taken to a dye house another time. And this process could continue so to create dyed and over-dyed colors that produced up to eight or, uh, or so hues. Um, so it was quite amazing that this could just continue this, this process of cutting and putting, placing back on the frame and binding would, would occur uh, so many times, and which is one of the reasons why this is such a luxurious textile. Um, after those threads are dyed and the pattern emerges on, on them. And, and I should mention that the threads that are being dyed are the warp threads, which, and are always of silk. And that is the vertical thread in a weave, a plain weave. Um, then those threads are woven and they're woven, uh, in several different ways. They could either be woven as a warp faced plain weave with a cotton weft. That means that the warp threads, the vertical threads are packed so closely that you can't see the cotton weft, which is the, the cross grain or the cross thread, um, you can't see it when, when you look at the, the weave. And so it would be woven uh, in this plain weave and then could be finished to create another texture of aesthetic texture of shine, such as being hammered or burnished with a convex piece of glass or hammer, and which created a moray or watered effect. Or uh, an additional kind of shine element could be added where that textile is covered with a concoction of egg whites and it creates this kind of very bright, shiny effect. Those threads could also then be made into an all-silk plain weave too, like a taffeta. It could be made into satin and it could also be made out of velvet, which is actually the most luxurious of all of the ecots because that ecot is in the pile of the which is the plush i know it's like amazing (laughs) (laughs) and i think there's a double ecot too right where they do don't they sometimes do the weft as well as the warp in central asia they only do the warp that's distinctive for that region but but in like southeast asia they do do the double which is also pretty (laughs) mind-blowing it's incredibly complex process yeah So the flourishing of the technique during the 19th century resulted in the centralization of the industry and production hubs such as Bukhara, which you spoke a little bit about, but it also created this sophisticated guild system. Can you tell us about these guilds and the importance of textile production within these cultures? So in order for these highly specialized artisans to gain their skill set, they did work in these guild systems where one would be an apprentice for many years, guided by mentors who had a lot of experience in either weaving or dyeing, etc. So it was really important to creating the textiles because it required such a high level of skill at each step of the process. 
Right. And as we've mentioned, these are incredibly beautiful textiles, which we are going to post plenty of images on our Instagram dress listeners. But I am curious uh, why you made the decision to organize the exhibition by motif rather than, say, a more traditional chronological or thematic-based approach. So in recent years, in the recent decades, there have been a lot of interest in Central Asian ECOT. And we had the opportunity to display these because of this really wonderfully generous gift from Dave and Elizabeth Riceboard, where all of the e-cuts on display are from them and will be going into our encyclopedic collection. But for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is an art museum, I felt that it would be a nice and a different way to show the textiles graphically so that people who look at these textiles, and most of whom are completely new to this kind of artwork, they could look at these textiles and see that by isolating these shapes, that the viewer could observe how specific motifs were interpreted and reinterpreted through color, form, orientation, and scale, and really appreciate the artistry and creative improvisation of the e-cut makers who drew upon the shapes that surrounded them in, in everyday life, as I mentioned, and which have these amazing origins in, in ancient history. Can you tell us a little bit about the reoccurring motifs that you see or the more common motifs that you see on Central Asian ecots? Yes, they're very generalized, but, and you know, a lot of the motifs, some of the motifs you can't actually even identify because they have mingled and morphed into something new, which is another wonderful aspect about these pieces. But you see things like a circular roundel motifs, which could be drawn from pomegranates. You see tree motifs such as cypress trees. Uh, you see these this beautiful combination of flora and fauna with things that look like vegetal branching forms. But when you look at it again, they're ram's horns, which symbolized power at the time. And the really interesting thing about these motifs, which originally have a lot of symbolism, is that when they're rendered in ecot and composed into a pattern, they lose their symbolism. So for instance, there's a section that looks at adornment, uh, jewelry, and amulets that have inspired patterns. And there is a great tradition of wearing amulets in Central Asia by men, women, and children, but mostly women when they were um, at the childbearing years. And they, these jewelry shapes though when worn on the body as jewelry, uh, would have been a sort of spiritual protection for the body. But when rendered in ecot, it's just a shape that is composing a pattern. So it's really quite interesting because it's, it's just almost like art for art's sake. It's, it's lovely. Now that we have learned a little bit about the history of Central Asian ecots and how they were produced, we are now going to discuss how and why they were used by the people who acquired them. And we're going to learn all about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners and Clarissa. So what was the significance culturally of the textile artistry of ecot in Central Asia? Well, because of the great amount of highly skilled labor that was required in the case of ecots to produce those textiles, these objects were a luxury item. Um, they're in line with a very long history in the region of prizing one's textiles as works of art, but also that they were pieces that were utilitarian um, and they were easy to move around and pack and be portable. 
But at the same time, they were commodity. I mean, they could be used as payment and even a means to pay taxes. Uh, but with Central Asian ikat, when they were worn on the body or decorating the home, you have to think that and imagine that they would have resonated against Central Asia's grassland steppe and desert landscapes and would have been beacons of color that reflected the wealth of the wearer as well as their level of sophistication. So these pieces were worn by men, women, and children um, in many ways. So one way is that they were worn as robes, a T-shaped robe called a chapan. Also, they could be made into a robe specific to women called a munisak, which is distinctive in that it is gathered at the sides under the arms. And those robes would have been worn for only the most formal occasions, uh, such as a wedding. Uh, Also, it would have been draped on a woman's coffin at her funeral. And uh, it's interesting because when looking at the book or visiting the exhibition, you'll see that most of the velvets, or actually all of the velvets in the exhibition, are munisak robes because they are the most prestigious of all of the ikats and that is the most formal of the female robes. Under the robes, women wore a T-shaped dress called a kurta and men wore tunics. And then under that, both men and women wore trousers. And this comes from a very long and ancient history of the region uh, being a nomadic land that domesticated superior horses and where both men and women rode their horses astride. Long history of women in pants in that region, and we love it. (laughs) It's not new there. No. (laughs) That's old news there. (laughs) And is this something that was worn? I mean, you mentioned these are luxury items. So are these items that were worn every day, or were they reserved for special occasions, or maybe both, depending on how wealthy and how many you had in your closet? Yeah, it was both. So if you could afford it, you could wear it every day. Uh, And you could layer them even and show off several of your robes. But if you couldn't afford it, you know, you would wear it on your special occasions and then wear a a plainer but still nice striped robe instead. And is there any significance with color per se um, at all? There's more research that needs to be done on color. There are some scholarship that suggests that in certain regions, red and pink were worn by women, um, or that in a city like Bukhara, that men could wear all of the colors, you know, it was considered the, they were considered the dandies, I guess, uh, in Western terms uh, (laughs) of of Central Asia. Um, There's also research that suggests that dark colors were specific to a region and for older women. So there's, there is more there about that. Um, I, I should also note that in the dyeing process, though not exclusively, um, there was a, a strong group of uh, the Jewish community that would do the indigo dyeing. So that was largely, blue was, was largely associated with, with the Jewish population, uh, whereas red and yellow uh, though not exclusively, again, were largely dyed by uh, Tajik people. So I'm just trying to picture this in my head because it really is fascinating to understand. So you dye, you do one dye in one place and then you walk with your bundle of threads to another place and dye it there? Yes, but you have to unbi- unbind and rebind again <laughs> in between. So this would go, <laughs> you would go back and forth <laughs> wow. to these different dyeing uh, workshops. Yeah. And, and like I said, 
The people who dyed yellow specialized in yellow. The people who dyed blue specialized in blue. And you could get a variety of blues and a variety of greens and purples or a variety of yellow, orange, green. You know, they they had this very specialized skill. And that is what has created this culmination of many hands creating one textile culminates in these really visually exciting and explosive works. And something I'm curious about too is who was constructing the garments? Was this something that a woman would do? Would there be someone locally that you could take your cloth to and they would make your garments? The robes could either be made ahead of time and then sold um, in a bazaar, or one could take a length of cloth and have it made at home. Uh, The way that these are sewn, even in the later 19th century, it all looks like to be sewn by hand. Very, very little machine stitching. And so, you know, if it was made by a, a woman, it would have been made in her home because women would have outside of the home had to be covered, but they were also sold and made out in the bazaar. So I think more research needs to be done on on the men or the women who do perform those tasks, but it looks like it was a mix of both. Yeah. And it's, it's just always something really interesting to consider. And I guess because of the shape of the garments, it's easier to do, I guess, ready to wear um, than, you know, specifically tailored garment that we see more in European cultures and et cetera. But um so now that we're talking about clothing on the body and being worn, these ecots being worn and how they were worn, I really want to conclude with a discussion about the exhibition display because it's actually really important and quite non-traditional. Many of the garments are displayed on dress forms. Oftentimes you have these incredibly beautiful robes that are layered on top of other incredibly beautiful robes uh, and paired with accessories. And this is as they, as they would have been on the human form. And I know some of our listeners might be thinking, well, of course, you know, this is um, what we're really used to seeing with more, um, you know, European American, quote unquote, Western fashion exhibitions. But this is actually not typical of how these types of garments are traditionally displayed because they are usually displayed as flat and uh, like two-dimensional objects. So can you tell us a little bit more about your decision to display the garment, some of the garments on dress forms? Well, um, you're right. These materials have been shown in the past. They're typically shown on tea stands so that they look like a T-shaped tunic with no draping and more two-dimensional. And that is so that you could really see the textiles. And there's a lot of value in that because especially um, in this exhibition, I used the tea stand also to show the linings, which were typically a contrasting cotton print, usually imported from Russia sometimes Europe and India. And it's a beautiful way to really highlight that textile. But when I was doing research for the exhibition, I kept reading that these robes were layered and that the wearers of these robes were an amazing display of color and contrast. If you can imagine these patterns being layered on top of each other, but very in very different patterns, and that the linings as I mentioned before, were contrasting, but also the facings were contrasting, where the facings along the openings of the robes were made of a contrasting ecot as well, or sometimes a nice striped silk. That when that is layered and one is walking and the 
the opening of their robe is fluttering. It would have just been an amazing display of wealth and of one's, you know, sophistication. And in this research, there are several instances where scholars said that Bukharan men could wear up to 10, <laughs> though in doing, uh, you know, research and looking at images, it looks like most commonly it was three or four. But I just really wanted to see what this looked like. I'm looking at photographs that are in black and white, and I'm reading about it. And I wanted to see if that could be recreated in some way where we can get the spirit of that level of color and contrast and also see how these robes would have looked on the body. So the downside of this method is that you don't get to see the beautiful textile of the third or the second robe that's layered under that first robe as well as you would on a tea stand. But on the other hand, you can appreciate the contrast and the aesthetic of that contrast and color and that explosive visual quality and Imagine how these people, these men would have looked walking through, you know, uh, this, this landscape with being such colorful uh, peacocks. Um, and additionally, displaying it in this way added a nice level of visual variety. So it's not just tea stands and then pardas. And pardas are the um, wall hangings made out of ikat that would have decorated homes or s separated rooms in the home. Um, it would have created another level of visual variety in the space. So uh, it helps with the pacing. And I feel like the mix of seeing the tea stand objects and some of the objects on dress forms uh, with the parda uh, kind of visually helps my ideas of understanding the impact that these patterns have, that they are powerful in their make and how they would have been used by being worn on the body. Right. And as a museum goer too, I mean, there's just something so special about, you know, you really do relate to clothing on the human form. So to see these textiles presented in this way, you know, like you said, you really can just relate to it, but also just imagine how incredibly beautiful, um, you know, these people presented themselves uh, in this way historically. And, um, you know, Clarissa, just thank you so much for being here today. Uh, dress listeners, you have to get out and see this exhibition. I think you have until August 11th. Is that right? Yes, they extended the exhibition. Um, but if you can't get to the exhibition, there is a catalog online at LACMA's website too. Uh, Clarissa, thank you so much for being here. This was a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure for me as well. Clarissa, thank you for being here. Yeah, I am actually curious, April, about your opinion because Clarissa's exhibition, well, it really diverges from the traditional display of ecot textiles and garments, which often involves this flat two-dimensional display. And so Clarissa actually presents these garments as they would have been worn on the human form. And there are sound arguments to be made for both methodologies, but I actually really find Clarissa's approach both refreshing and perhaps most importantly, more relatable for a broader audience. Clothing is made to be worn by a human form after all. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I think that it, it totally changes the dialogue that you have as a viewer with the object when you get to see something in the round, right? It makes a huge difference. 
Yeah, and interestingly, I also think this exhibition presents this really uh, good point for discussion on the ways that garment display might play into enforcing the tropes surrounding Western, quote-unquote, and non-Western, quote-unquote, clothing. So, for instance, when you go to fashion exhibitions, the clothing is more often than not displaying so-called Western fashion, often on white dress forms. You know, this is clothing created by and for American, European, and historically white American, European consumption. So I I just feel like when conversely a museum showcases the clothes of a non-European or American culture, such as the Japanese kimono or a Central Asian ecot robe, when when you display that as this flat two-dimensional piece of art versus a garment that's, you know, meant to be worn on a body, by doing this, are they further enforcing this division of of Western and non-Western people and cultures. Yeah, definitely. And I think this speaks to the practice of museology, which is how does an institution that is considered kind of an authority, the way in which they present information can color our viewpoints uh, about objects. Um, And it's something very important to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And so I really commend Clarissa and LACMA for presenting these pieces as they were intended to be used. I think this is an incredible undertaking and really one that more museums should consider in making their exhibitions more accessible to the general public. And I would actually really love to hear listener feedback on this topic, especially if you yourself, dress listeners, can make it to the exhibition before it closes August 11th. And for those of you who cannot make it to L.A., you can pick up a copy of the catalog on LACMA's website. And so cool, Cast LACMA's catalogs are now printed on demand using an innovative tool called Collator. So not only do they not pre-print their catalogs, which takes the guesswork out of print runs, thus creating less waste, they also offer users the opportunity to browse through more than 1,000 high-resolution images in the museum's collection and create their own books, which is awesome. It is awesome because LACMA has an incredible collection. This really feels like the wave of the future. But that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you two ponder the flat versus the embodied garment next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address your questions. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. At dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can, of course, follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.